We're going to read the parable itself, verses 24 to 30, and then look at Jesus' explanation of the parable in verses 36 to 43. So Matthew chapter 13, before we read, beginning at verse 24, let's pray together. Our Heavenly Father, we are delighted to turn to your word and have our souls nourished and fed. You know what each of us here today needs, and so we ask that you would pour out your Holy Spirit richly into our hearts and lives and give us what we need, that your name might be glorified, and then indeed we might be able to grow. For Jesus' sake we pray, amen. Matthew 13, verse 24, he put another parable before them saying, the kingdom of heaven may be compared to a man who sowed a good seed in his field, but while his men were sleeping, his enemy came and sowed weeds among the wheat and went away. So when the plants came up and bore grain, then the weeds appeared also, and the servants of the master of the house came and said to him, Master, did you not sow good seed in your field? How then does it have weeds? He said to them, An enemy has done this. So the servants said to him, Do you want us to go and gather them? But he said, No, lest in gathering the weeds you root up the wheat along with them. Let both grow together until the harvest. And at harvest time, I will tell the reapers, gather the weeds first and bind them in bundles to be burned, but gather the wheat into my barn. A few verses later in verse 36, Jesus explains the parable to his disciples. Then he left the crowds and went into the house and his disciples came to him saying, explain to us the parable of the weeds of the field. He answered, the one who sows the good seed is the son of man. The field is the world and the good seed is the sons of the kingdom. The weeds are the sons of the evil one, and the enemy who sowed them is the devil. The harvest is the end of the age, and the reapers are angels. Just as the weeds are gathered and burned with fire, so will it be at the end of the age. The Son of Man will send his angels, and they will gather out of his kingdom all causes of sin and all lawbreakers, and throw them into the fiery furnace. In that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Then the righteous will shine like the sun in the kingdom of their father. He who has ears, let him hear. Thus far the reading of God's word. May he bless it to our hearts and lives this morning. So beloved congregation, everyone with us here this morning, I want to just walk through, there's a lot here. <laughs> and if we weren't going through these systematically, I would probably skip this parable. It's a difficult one. It's uh, had a lot of different interpretations there. But I want to begin with just an overview of the parable itself and the story. So there's a farm field. There's just one field. Pick an 80-acre field somewhere in your mind if you want to. You're back 40, wherever you live. Just think there's one field. We don't know how large, but there's a field. There's an owner of the field, verse 24, okay? The son of man. That's Jesus' most frequent way of referring to himself. So he's saying, I'm the, the owner of the field. And this owner, Jesus, went out into the field and sowed good seed. Uh, we find out later it's actually seed for wheat. He owns the field and had his servants likely sow wheat in it. After the field was sown in wheat, the servants were sleeping. Now, this doesn't mean they were being lazy. It's probably just at the end of the day or during the nighttime. Uh, but the servants had been faithful. They worked hard. But afterwards, while they're sleeping, distracted, doing something else, the enemy comes in and we're told the enemy is the devil. And the devil sows weeds. He sows weed seed in the wheat field. Now, the weeds are darnel, the Greek zazania. 
A simple definition of the weed is it's a spurious wheat, a plant that grows in Palestine, which resembles wheat in many ways, but is worthless. Okay, So there's some similarities to it. And the weeds grew up in the field alongside the wheat, and the weeds were not able to be distinguished from the wheat until later. They'll be distinguished eventually when the grain comes out. But at first, they couldn't distinguish them. Now, verse 26, when the plants were grown and bore grain, the difference between the two plants was discernible. Verse 26, when the plants came up and bore grain, then the weeds appeared also. And the parable makes very clear that you can distinguish between the wheat and the weeds. The servants could see the difference when they had grown up. And the servants are confused by the magnitude of the amount of weeds in the field. It was common to have some weeds in a field, but there was enough. They're like, oh, did, did you catch what they asked their master? Almost this. Did you put the wrong stuff in the bag? Like when you put all the seeds in the bag and went out to spread it, did you sow weeds in the field? We wouldn't think that you'd do that, but there's so many of them. Did you actually sow uh, wheat seeds or uh, uh, weed seeds instead of wheat seeds? And the servants of the master of the house said, did you not sow good seed in your field? How then does it have weeds? And Jesus makes clear, look, the enemy did it. No, I sowed wheat, but the enemy came along and he sowed weeds. Uh, Jesus makes clear that the presence of unbelievers is the work of Satan, the devil, and the presence of uh, the sons of the kingdom, the presence of believers, is his work. And then notice, the servants are concerned about the weeds so much that they say, do you want us to go and gather them? They're ready to go clean up the field. Would have been a ton of work. Do you want us to start this work? And Jesus says in verse 29, no, lest in gathering the weeds, you root up the wheat along with them. So many who know about this weed seed, this darnel, say that the root system intertwines with the roots of the wheat, so that if you would weed the weeds up, if you'd pull the weeds up, you'd also pull the wheat up. And Jesus is concerned about a big harvest. So he says, catch that, for the sake of the wheat, I want you to leave them. Don't pull up the weeds, leave them where they are, because I want a good harvest. I want the wheat to grow. And so Jesus commands his servants to let them both grow until harvest time. And at harvest time, the reapers, whom he clearly states are the angels, verse 41, they'll gather the weeds together, they'll burn them, throwing them into the fiery furnace where there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. And the angels will also gather together the wheat. And on that day, the righteous will shine like the sun in the kingdom of their father. The weeds are unbelievers and the wheat are believers who have been given a new heart by the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, what in the world do we do with this parable? <laughs> Let me begin with probably the tallest order that is almost first, always first in line that we have to distinguish here. And it's the order of business figuring out what the field is. Some people say the field is the church. And they say that this parable teaches that the church will always have unbelievers mixed into it. And there will always be the Judas Iscariots, the lawless, the counterfeit Christians who look like the real thing, but who ultimately don't believe and will be sorted out in the judgment. And the conclusion made then is that the church is a mixed multitude, which will not ultimately be sorted out until judgment day. While there are some things to commend that view uh, regarding this parable, and while we certainly believe that that doctrinal statement is true, that mixed in the church are those who profess faith in Jesus but don't really believe. We get that from other passages. I don't believe that's what this parable is teaching for two reasons. 
First, in his explanation of the parable, Jesus said in verse 38, the field is what? The world. He did not say it was the church. And we might say, well, Matthew wouldn't use the language of the church, right? But if you flip over to Matthew chapter 18, and particularly verse 17, the word church is used twice. So Matthew has no problem using the word church when Jesus uses it. So Jesus says the, world, the, the, the seed, the field, is indeed the world, very straightforward. So the world at large, not the church. And secondly, when a church member's lifestyle and beliefs make it clear that they are not a believer, and it becomes clear to the church, then Jesus doesn't command the church to just bear with the person until the judgment day, right? What does Paul say in 1 Corinthians 5, and what does Jesus teach in Matthew 18? If you see the fruit of someone's life, and that fruit is not in accord with being a born-again Christian, but it appears that someone is an unrepentant non-Christian, we're called to exercise what's called church discipline. And the final stage of that is what? Removing them. But here, in this parable, Jesus says, do not remove the weeds. He says, let them be. And so if this was regarding the church, that would actually be uh, contradicting to what uh, we're told in Matthew 18. If your unrepentant brother refuses to listen even to the church, let him be to you as a Gentile and a tax collector. Treat him like he's not a believer. 1 Corinthians 5, 2, let him who has done this sexual immorality be removed from among you. This parable teaches, though, that when you discover who the weeds are, you're not supposed to remove them. So again, that suggests that uh, along with what Jesus is saying, the field is the world. Indeed, the field is the world and not the church. And if you noticed in this parable, when it became clear to the servants that the weeds were not wheat, they asked Jesus, what? Do you want us to go and gather them? And Jesus clearly says, no, I don't want you to do that. So it'd be hard, be hard pressed to say that the field is the church because indeed elsewhere, Jesus has commanded us, actually you should remove such a one if they appear to be an unrepentant, if they're unrepentant and they appear to be not a believer at all. Now, given that, I want us to notice three truths from this parable. Under this theme, Jesus requires righteous believers to live in this world among law-breaking unbelievers. He requires that we do this. First of all, I want us to know what we're required to do, what is required of us. Second, why does Jesus require this, the why? And then thirdly, how long does Jesus require that we, righteous believers, live alongside and among law-breaking unbelievers? So first, what is Jesus requiring of us? Verse 30, let both grow together until the harvest. I do not want to spend a lot of time on this. <laughs> I want to at least point it out that, what the, that the Lord is clearly teaching that wheat and tares are sown in the field of this world and there will be no separation between the two until the judgment. That's just life in this world. It's just status quo teaching of the parable. He straightforwardly teaches us that the lives of all of his people will be characterized by at least one thing, We will live among unbelievers who break the law and are enemies of Christ and live for sin. It's not an option. We don't have the option of going to Mars to live there. And even if we did, our lives would be intertwined with non-Christians, right? Who probably got us there in the spaceship and provided oxygen and everything else that we need. There's no way to live in this world as a believer, disconnected, unentwined and unentangled with, to some extent, non-Christians in the world, weeds. And Jesus even prayed regarding this reality. John 17, 15, I do not ask that you take them out of the world, but that you keep them from the evil one. We may have wanted to Jesus to take us out of this world, 
But he said, Father, I don't ask that you take them out of the world, but just that while they're in the world, you keep them from evil as their lives are intertwined with the weeds. Now, I know there are a lot of Christians fighting to make the little world and make a bubble of heaven on earth. And if the Lord meant for us to create such a heaven on earth, he'd have taken us straight to heaven right away. But God's will in his infinite wisdom is for his people, we believers, to live among unbelievers. And we will most often live among them, if you look at church history, as the minority people, right? The gates narrow, the ways hard. There's not a lot of people on it. But the road that most people are on, the majority of people in the world, they go through the wide gate. And that wide road is easy. It's the road that leads to destruction. I understand the desire, we probably all do, the desire to, it'd be nice if we could have heaven on earth. It'd be nice if we could no longer have our lives have to be intertwined with those who hate the Lord and who are lawbreakers, whose every bent by nature is just to uh, look at God and say, leave me alone, I'm going to do everything I can to disobey you. It would be nice, that day's coming. But Jesus teaches us in this parable, it's not here yet, and there's nothing we can do to change that. The servants, hey, let's change it. Jesus says no. So why does Jesus require this? Why is he requiring his people to continue to live in this world after they're saved uh, alongside those who don't believe? He tells us, verse 28, the servant said to Jesus, why do you want us, uh, then do you want us to go and gather them? But he said, no, lest in gathering the weeds, you root up the wheat along with them. Now what stands out is the servant's eagerness to root up the weeds right? Jesus didn't hint that they should be rooted up. <laughs> they, according to this parable, were uh, contriving that all on their own. Oh, we sowed good seed for the uh, master. An enemy came and sowed wheat, weeds in this field. Uh, do you want us to go get these weeds out? And Jesus says, no, lest in gathering the weeds, you root up the wheat along with them. So Jesus is requiring his people to live among unbelievers until the judgment because he's after what? A massive wheat harvest. He's after a massive wheat harvest. He wants a big harvest. If the church would go out into the world and just kill and annihilate and murder everyone who doesn't currently believe in Jesus, what would that do to the harvest? Well, who gets harvested, right? Weeds. The weeds turn into wheat. What gets harvested? Wheat. How are weeds supposed to turn into wheat and become wheat? How is there supposed to be a big wheat harvest if we remove any possibility of there being wheat? So Jesus is concerned about the wheat and the harvest. Now, James and John, the sons of thunder, witnessed Jesus being rejected by a Samaritan village, Luke 9. And this is what took place when they saw it. When James and John saw Jesus rejected, they said, Lord, do you want us to tell fire to come down from heaven and consume them? <laughs> Catch the spirit? Let's pull out the weeds. Jesus, is, remember Luke just told us his face has been set toward Jerusalem. He is marching back to Jerusalem. They go through a Samaritan village. He's rejected. Should we just kill all these people, Lord? They rejected you. They're, they're weeds. Can we just remove them? It's a legitimate request. And Jesus, catch what he, he turned and rebuked them. Not, hey, no, I don't think that's a good idea, but a rebuke. You guys got to cut this out. That's not what we're here to do. No, don't kill them. No, that's not what I'm here for in my first coming. No, not at all. 
James and John were all about judging and destroying and rooting out unbelievers from this world, but Jesus rebuked them. They have been with Jesus for quite some time now. They still didn't get it. And one writer I'll put it this way, the spirit that has shown itself in church history by the burning of heretics and doing violence to remove supposed tares is of the same satanic spirit that can even grip Christians. We are to do violence to no man, Luke 3, 14. We are to be wise as serpents, but harmless as doves, Matthew 10, 13. We are not to rail against or retaliate against our enemies and persecutors, but rather bless them and pray for them, Matthew 5. We are to rebuke and reprove the works of darkness, but we are to do violence to no one. If we used our power and if the church used her power to kill and slay all unbelievers, that would destroy the harvest. And that's Jesus' point to his disciples and to these servants. No, I want wheat to grow. I want my kingdom to be built. Do not go kill. Do not go exercise judgment. That will take place on the last day and you're not even gonna be the ones to do it. I've got other messengers for that work. So let me mention something. The parable does not go into much detail about how believers are to live among unbelievers. It does not flush that out in great detail. It does not say, here's how we interact with the world. It just details that we are to live among them. But there is one aspect that the parable actually gets to regarding how we're called to live among unbelievers. Again, it doesn't flush it out in a lot of detail, but there's one main point, and that is this. Our lives toward unbelievers are not to be destructive toward them in order that the harvest might be great. And let me flip over to a familiar passage, Romans chapter 12, and read something which is probably familiar to most of our ears. Bless those who persecute you. Bless and do not curse them. Repay no one evil for evil, but give thought to do what is honorable in the sight of all. If possible, so far as it depends on you, live peaceably with all. And if your enemy is hungry, kill him. Pull him out like a weed. No, feed him. If he's thirsty, kill him. No, give him something to drink. Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with what? A bullet in the head? No, overcome evil with good. Now is the time for this, beloved. The day is going to come when it is no longer the time for the kingdom of God to bear patiently with the sons of disobedience. But right now in this kingdom that Jesus has established, he has called the church to go out into the world and to take one on the cheek. He's called us to go out into the world and not, hey, go shoot everybody who doesn't believe. Go kill them. Go remove them. Go, go pull them out. No. They're the harvest. Our job as a church is to be a light, to be a faithful witness, and to bear patiently with the weeds, even as we look forward to the day when finally life will be heavenly. Now, how long does Jesus require this? Until the judgment. The harvest is the end of the age, verse 39, and the reapers are angels. Just as the weeds are gathered and burned with fire, so will it be at the end of the age. The Son of Man will send his angels and they will gather out of his kingdom all causes of sin and all lawbreakers and throw them into the fiery furnace. In that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Then the righteous will shine like the sun in the kingdom of their father. He who has ears, let him hear. So the entire time between Jesus' first coming and his second coming is a time when believers are to live among unbelievers for the sake of a great harvest. It's a time when the gospel is preached when we are light and salt in this world, that's the time that we live in at the present. But this will come to a drastic 
awe-inspiring, almost unbelievable conclusion on Judgment Day. And there will be a great eternal change in the living situation for both believer and unbeliever. At the judgment, unbelievers will be removed and we will no longer have to live among them. It will be a day of days to remember for all eternity. Who are the unbelievers? They are referred to as lawbreakers. Here, they are those who never came under the yoke of believing in Jesus and following him. Revelation 28, 21, 8 describes them as for the cowardly, the faithless, the detestable, as for murderers, the sexually immoral, sorcerers, idolaters, and all liars. Their portion will be in the lake that burns with fire and sulfur. It's a description of those who say, Lord Jesus, I'm not going to look to you for forgiveness. I don't need a savior. I got this all on my own. I'm good enough to save myself or there is no God and there is no judgment day and this is all a big hoax. You can leave me alone and go fly a kite. And so they go live however they want. Those are the weeds. Those are the people who on judgment day for rejecting the Lord Jesus Christ, turning him down, refusing to believe are now on the hook for their sins. And they will all discover that that's a big hook. And it's an eternal payment and the payment never ends. And actually they're smaller than they thought they were. And their ability to look God in the faith is gonna, in the face and say, I'm fine is gonna dwindle to nothing. Those are the weeds and they will be separated. Notice how it's gonna work. Angels will be sent to sort through humanity. Verse 41, the son of man will send his angels and they will gather out of his kingdom all causes of sin and all lawbreakers. Now, you caught what the servants wanted to do, right? Can we go pull the weeds up? And Jesus says, not now. And then he finishes the parable by saying, not ever. You're not going to be involved in it. I've, I've not saved a people who are going to go out and be the reapers. The angels are going to reap. So it puts us in our right place, right? Like we're the people who go spread the gospel. We're the people who love. We're the people who shine like lights in the world of darkness. That is our work. Our work is not the judgment of God. God will do that all on his own. And he tells us about it in Revelation 14, 17. Another angel came out of the temple in heaven and he too had a sharp sickle describing what judgment day will look like, a small picture of it. And another angel came out from the altar, the angel who has authority over the fire, and he called with a loud voice to the one who had the sharp sickle, put in your sickle and gather the clusters from the vine of the earth for its grapes are ripe. So the angel swung his sickle across the earth and gathered the grape harvest of the earth and threw it into the great winepress of the wrath of God. And the winepress was trodden outside the city and blood flowed from the winepress as high as a horse's bridle for 184 miles. It's a lot of judgment. It's a lot of people who are going to be uprooted as weeds on the judgment day and have to undergo judgment from God. This is not our work. It's God's work. God has not given us the responsibility, wrote one writer, of removing the tares. He's reserved that job solely for himself. God and, God and wisdom infinitely greater than our own will separate the wheat from the tares. And if you want a little more heightening of this teaching, what does that mean for us? Again, Romans 12, but a different verse. Beloved, never avenge yourselves, but leave it to the wrath of God, for it is written, vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. Day's coming. Can we just go get rid of the weeds? 
What does Jesus say? What does the Lord teach us? Never avenge yourselves. Never do it. Not sometimes, never. Why? Because vengeance doesn't belong to us. It belongs to God. And he makes it very clear, vengeance is mine. I'm going to take it. When judgment day comes, I have a bone to pick God to say his justice is going to be meted out. I will repay. But he does not want we, his people, doing that. Well, what does it look like to fall under the judgment of God? Jesus describes it a little bit in the parable. There's a fiery furnace and weeping and gnashing of teeth. Revelation 9, 2 speaks of a great furnace. What stands out to all readers who read this regarding a fiery furnace is just the pain of being burned. It's not you'll be around the heat, it's they'll be put in the fiery furnace. And some people view this as symbolic, likely so, but what everybody gets in reading this is the depiction it will be incredibly painful. There's very few things more painful in all the world than being burned. Imagine being burned eternally and having that kind of pain. And it says there will be weeping. And the word weeping is bitter grief that springs from feeling utterly hopeless. It is usually accompanied by shrieks brought on by uncontainable emotional pain. The weeping here isn't, oh, I'm having a sad day. The weeping is going through so much pain and heartache on the inside that you can just, you just cry, you just scream out, you just shriek. That's all you can do. You can't verbalize, you're just in pain. And the gnashing of teeth in the New Testament, gnashing is a picture of the extreme anguish and utter despair of those consigned to eternal torment in hell. That's what Jesus says is going to happen to the weeds. He's going to do it. We don't do it beforehand. We love, we spread. What Jesus is going to do with his angels and the Son of Man himself, he is going to enact this and he will inflict this judgment on the weeds. John MacArthur says, uh, quoting someone else said this, there's no way to describe hell. Nothing on earth can compare to it. No living person has any real idea of it. True, right? None of us have any idea what hell is. We've never experienced it. No madman in wildest flights of insanity ever beheld its horror. No man in delirium ever pictured a place so utterly terrible as this. No nightmare racing across a fevered mind ever produces a terror to match that of the mildest hell. No murder scene with splashed blood and oozing wound ever suggested a revulsion that could touch the borderlands of hell. Let the most gifted writer exhaust his skill in describing this roaring cavern of unending flame, and he would not even touch the nearest edge of it. On the flip side, the righteous will shine like the sun in the kingdom of their father. This is believers. Every single Christian is called here the righteous. Two things about it. We're righteous because we've been declared righteous, because our sin has been imputed to Jesus and his righteousness has been imputed to us. So every believer is counted righteous before God as if we had obeyed every one of God's commandments as perfectly as Jesus did. That's amazing. So every one of us who are believers, we stand before God and look forward to shining like the sun because we stand in Jesus' righteousness. Jesus is the one that we're righteous before God. He's the reason that we're righteous before God. For our sake, God made Jesus Christ to be sin who knew no sin so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. And the righteous is also a description of believers because after we get a new heart and after God has justified us and declared in my son, you are righteous. I'm gonna count you righteous. I'll take all of his work and I'll credit, I'll put it in your column. When that takes place, what happens in us? We seek after righteousness. 
We want to be holy, not to try and be saved, but for the rest of our lives to praise God, to thank God, to offer him back, Lord, you've done all this for me, I'm yours. It doesn't matter what you command me to do, I'm all in. No matter the pain, no matter the cost, you've promised me heaven that I'll shine like the sun with you one day in your kingdom. So you've asked me to obey you, I will obey. Notice the language shine like the sun. It's actually a phrase very similar to Daniel chapter 12, verse three. There's a few images we can look at, but right now our lamps burn a little fairly dim. It'd be nice if they burn brighter. But on this day, we're gonna shine like the sun. That's pure radiance. It's like the difference between the sun behind the clouds on a cloudy day is the sun shining. Sure, it's there, but it's just dimmed by the clouds. Well, on the last day, when we get bodies like Christ's own glorious body, the clouds are all gonna be gone. And we're gonna shine forth in the way we want to now because we will no longer be burdened by this flesh and by the temptations of the world and harassed by Satan and we'll be perfect. It'll be a glorious day where we will just radiate in God's presence. Now, Jesus ends the parable, Matthew 13, 43, and then I want to look at two things. He who has ears, let him hear. If you've got a pair of ears, Jesus says, I want you to hear spiritually. Turn on our spiritual ears. For believers, let me bring this home to us, those of us who are hearing What's our attitude toward unbelievers? Do we have hate, vengeance toward them, wishing all would perish, or do we have compassion on them? And I asked that after, not when we looked at the first point or two in the parable, but after we finished the third one, describing the judgment that they're all going to face, the judgment that every unbeliever is going to face. When we hear about that, I think the only proper response is we do have compassion and we withhold our judgments. We don't go and try and remove weeds from the world, but instead we want everybody to miss that judgment and to have eternal life. And so we're gonna work to spread the gospel. R.C. Sproul said this, you have trouble with hell? I do. I cannot enjoy contemplating for one minute any human being being in hell. Jesus is the one who talks about the lake of fire and all those ghastly images that the New Testament uses. A symbol only approximates I think the person in hell would give anything that he had to be in a lake of fire only. I don't want to go to hell and I don't want anybody to go there and I can't conceive of anybody being there without being dreadfully upset about it. Yet God says people will be there. That just causes me anguish. I can't stand that thought. What is our attitude toward weeds, beloved? What is our attitude toward people who hate us? I mean, really hate, like they're gonna make your life and my life miserable. They're really enemies. They can't stand us. They want Christians dead. What's our attitude toward them? Kill them before they kill us? That's just never been part of being in the kingdom. Die? Yep, for the sake of the gospel, right? The blood of the martyrs is the seed of the church. Bear with them patiently. Have sympathy toward them. If I was totally depraved and didn't have a new heart, would I be any different? No. We wouldn't. Maybe the form of our sin would be different. But beloved, what Jesus Christ has called us to is fairly clear. Take it on the cheek. Be patient. Don't repay. I'm going to repay. I take care of it. It's not the work of my servants. It's the work of my angels and the Son of Man. We'll do our work on the last day, and it will be perfect. 
And we can rest assured that God, when judgment day comes, will enact justice in a far more infinitely perfect way than we could ever conceive. And for any who don't know the Lord Jesus Christ, open your ears to this. If you have ears here, Jesus Christ, all who reject Jesus Christ will be in the fiery furnace of God's wrath, weeping. And it's not just a bad day of a little bit of crying, weeping, gnashing teeth under the pain, like you stub your toe and you, oh, and it will last forever. And you've got life right now, and God is patient. He tells us in 2 Peter, he's patient right now. Don't take his patience as any indication that judgment isn't coming, because it is. And so you've got today, you might not have tomorrow. You've got this hour, you might not be alive at 3 o'clock this afternoon. To come to the Lord Jesus Christ, and if you believe in him, he will have gone through the fiery furnace for your sins in your place, and you will never see that fiery furnace ever. You will never fall under the wrath of God. But if you refuse Jesus, then note this. The Bible teaches it so clearly. The day will come when you will be thrown into the fiery furnace. There will be no mercy. You'll be weeping and gnashing your teeth, and it will last forever. I mean, it doesn't end. After a million years, you'll say, Uncle Lord, I've had enough, and it just doesn't stop. There's no stopping if you have ears, hear that. Jesus is trying to get every one of our attention. Listen carefully to this and believe in Jesus. He alone is the refuge for every one of us. Let's pray.